This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a minute, we'll hear from David Bonson, founder and boss of The Bonson Group, a money management firm. In these volatile times in the stock market, you want to hear what he says because he shows you how you can receive money. And even if the market goes up or down, cash will come in. You won't want to miss this one. But first, here's what's ahead this week. Well, a lot's ahead for the week. You're going to hear numbers around 150. What does 150 refer to? The yields on two-year treasuries and 10-year treasuries. Right now, what they call the yield curve, what that means is when they say inverted yield curve, remember that for your next cocktail party, inverted yield curve means that short-term rates, i.e. the two-year treasury bond, is yielding more than the 10-year, and they say that's a sign of a looming recession, which has helped roil the markets this week. There are a lot of factors going into that, we're not on the eve of a recession yet, unless we go and make more mistakes on the trade front, but that can be salvaged. But you're going to hear a lot about the number 150. That's about what both those bonds are yielding, 1.5%. They love the thing basis points. 1.52 means 1.52%, 152 basis points. So bone up on that and you'll sound extremely knowledgeable. This week marks the 100th birthday of my father, Malcolm Forbes. He's not with us. He died uh, some 29 years ago. But at Forbes this week, we celebrated the centennial. He was sort of the heart and spirit of this company. His father founded it. He helped establish the Forbes brand as a world global brand standing for entrepreneurial striving and success and the good life. Whether it was riding motorcycles, whether it was ballooning, whether it was entertainment on a scale never seen before. He didn't spend a lot of money on it, but he sure got a big bang for those bucks like a good Scotsman. He established the Forbes brand, and we've been building on it ever since. He had a very playful side to himself. Just one example among many. Back in the 1960s, the dictator of China, Mao Zedong, had a red book called The Sayings of Chairman Mao. You were supposed in China have one and wave the red book at rallies. Well, my father thought he would do a capitalist version. So he had the sayings of Chairman Malcolm, and the color was gold and money green, where he had some of his pithy sayings. But to market the book, you know, dedications on books are usually to one or two people. He put in 5,000 of his nearest and dearest friends, relatives, people who worked at Forbes, advertisers, potential advertisers. So 5,000 people got a book dedicated to them. Now, if you got a book dedicated to yourself, even if you had 4,999 others, it's something you will treasure and not likely throw away. So one example among many of his unique marketing. Of course, Hong Kong on a grimmer subject will be in the news, obviously. The protesters are upping. They now want people to withdraw money from ATMs. How are they gonna resolve this as they both sides dig in? Will there be another Tiananmen Square? Well, one way to get around it, put the diplomats to work, is take the original treaty that Britain signed with China in 1984 for the handover in 1997, and both sides vow they'll adhere to the treaty. China's been chipping away at it. They've denied it, but they've been chipping away at it. The Chinese will say, well, of course adhere to the treaty. That way they can say they are not backing down in the face of protests, and the protesters, at least some of them, will acknowledge, yes, we should not commit violence and all that good stuff. Diplomats must be at work finding a face-saving way to get them to back off. The protesters have made their point. 
Their freedoms are not to be trampled on. And now they have to find a way to make sure they don't lose it all. And Hong Kong, one of the great success stories of the post-World War II period, doesn't come to a tragic end. Iran, that situation continues to simmer as we try to seize a tanker docked in Gibraltar. Looks like we're not going to be able to do it. But the Iranians are going to continue to ramp that thing up. Those sanctions are hurting. So we're going to hear more from that. And on the presidential side, the Democrats are starting to drop out. A lot of them are going to be running for the Senate. Watch for him and others to be dropping out and pursuing, as they say, other opportunities in the political sphere. This week, we'll hear home sales. On Wednesday the 21st, we'll get a report on existing home sales. On Friday the 23rd, we'll get new residential home sales. Housing market has been rather wobbly, and we'll see if that wobbliness is continuing. I'm betting that it is. On Thursday the 22nd, we'll get the weekly unemployment insurance report. This is an indicator of how difficult they're finding jobs, how many are being laid off. That report should be a fairly good one. In the current circumstances, it is a lagging indicator. But if that should disappoint, that would be a real shock. Well, my special guest today is David Bonson. He's the founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group. He's also been a Forbes contributor, and he's author of the new book, The Case for Dividend Growth, Investing in a Post-Crisis World. David, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me, Steve. I have to say, a book like that, in times like this, sounds like a fuddy-duddy, unsexy, boring, low-return approach for retirees. Totally uncool in this age of fangs. Yet you say dividend growth, and I underline that word growth, dividend growth investing is, and I quote, the best opportunity for passive wealth creation ever invented. In your book, you make reference. You were born in 1974, and you point out that if you invested in the utility sector versus NASDAQ, the utility sector would be 800% better today than investing in NASDAQ. Now, of course, 74 was the worst year for utilities. Con Ed went virtually bankrupt. Whole industry was smashed by inflation and politicians not giving them rate increases. But nonetheless, you make an interesting point, and you make the point this dividend approach is especially great for young people. So make your case. Well, I appreciate you setting it up that way, Steve. It is a very interesting book to have written where I'm sort of making my opinions known about and, the and, future. And by, and by the way, David manages $1.5 billion, so uh, this is not just a couple of guys at the bar stool talking about Wall Street. Yes, we just passed $1.7 billion, and I'm very confident we'll be at $2 billion next time you and I uh, <laughs> chat about this. So... We, it is a serious responsibility. It's a lot of money to manage. And, and even when we had a much smaller business, I obviously took it very seriously. But it's funny. When you, you, you talk about the era of FANG and where we are right now and how unsexy dividend growth investing may be, I think we can just take the exact same sentence and re-utter it in 1999. And at that time, it was an incredibly unpopular idea that cash flow mattered, that growing cash flow payments to shareholders. And in fact, if you were a Silicon Valley company who dared to pay a dividend, it wouldn't have been not a positive. It would have been a negative. They would have said, why in the world are you returning this cash to shareholders when your return on equity is so superior? And I think we found out the, the hard way that fundamentals matter 
And and my thesis in the book, Steve, is that we just had two very odd decades to start this new millennium. You had the tech crash. Well, you said the decade of 1998 to 2008 was the worst you're probably ever going to experience. Since the Depression, and I would like to think the worst that we'll, we'll see in my lifetime. And and for to go 10 calendar years where from point A to point B there was no positive return doesn't have any precedent in history in a free enterprise society besides the Great Depression almost 100 years ago. So it was pretty bad. It was bookended, of course, by the tech crash, 9-11, and then at the end, the Great Recession and financial crisis. But I wouldn't say the last 10 years have been very normal either. You had $4 trillion of quantitative easing. You spent the bulk of the decade at a 0% Fed funds rate. You had unprecedented stimulus being applied, and you were coming out of that Great Recession. The mystery of the last 10 years is not how equities did so well. It's how the economy didn't do even better. And I think there are policy reasons that held the economy back even more. It was actually a very tepid recovery, as you know. Yeah, one of the worst from a sharp downturn in history. That's right. And so now you look into the future and you say, well, if we're not going to have a 10 years of lost decade and we're likely not going to have another 10 years of almost un- quadrupling. No. Yeah. <laughs> so so what will it look like? And I think you can look to more normalized decades that we certainly had post-war up through the Reagan-Clinton years. You had really good decades. You had some bad ones, but they were filled with up and down movements. But what dividend growth investing did is give positive cash flow to shareholders through all of that period, it enabled us to look at stocks the way I believe they were always meant to be looked at, and that is as if they were companies. And you make the point that your approach is not sector-focused, but company-focused. you got to look at individual companies. Now, you cite in the book since 1930, S&P 500 return averaged, what, 9.8%. Since 1930, 42% of that has been dividends. But then, if you factor in reinvesting of dividends, it gets even better. Tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, the math of the compounding is such, and that's why this isn't it. And by the way, you emphasize compounding, Einstein and others were right, is the ultimate miracle. The ultimate miracle, eighth wonder of the world. And, and I think that the longer the time involved, the more of a miracle it becomes. But what dividend growth investing does is take a miracle of compounding a return and then put compounding within the compounding because you're getting a compounding of your return of your asset class, but you have these dividends reinvesting along the way that are you really, if you were being logical, and investors usually aren't logical, you really should be rooting to have more periods of downward volatility because you're sitting there reinvesting dividends at lower prices and it's just compounding that ultimate return. But you say that if you reinvest dividends, 80% of the return over time is from dividends. Yeah, and 80% is understating the number. That's really because the S&P, of course, has changed itself over the years. There's companies that come in and come out of it. If you really just sort of let the thing play out, I could make an argument. Jeremy Siegel has written some interesting stuff on this, that reinvestment of dividends is really in the high 90s through time of what the return of an index offers. You know what? uh, You mentioned I was born in 1974, and 
and I know you weren't born a whole lot before that either. Oh, but thank you. <laughs> if you, if you, you'll come back again. But, but you remember where interest rates were in the mid '70s when I was born. And if someone came and said, "I just need income, give me some cash flow," the bond market was offering high single digits. The S and P's yield, which was pretty good back then, it was at four and a half percent. It'd be easy to say, "Look, if you want income, you got to go to the bond market." Well, the twenty-year Treasury they issued in the early '80s. 15 and three quarters percent. That's right. And that, that was sort of near the tail end of how high rates went through the end of the Carter years. But even like right in that mid-70s, you were about 8% on a 10-year and you were about 4% on the S&P's yield. And what's amazing is that right now today, that $10,000 someone could have invested, they were getting 800 bucks a year back then. Now they're getting 200 bucks a year. But if they were just getting the S&P 500, they'd be getting about 45% per year on their money because the dividends from the index are now up that much. And that's the whole index. That's not just a focus on dividend-growing companies. And, of course, forget the fact that the S&P is also up 28 times you know, since that time period. So it's not something just for income. It's not just for growth. It's meant to be for both. But fundamentally... I believe it's for those who want to see their income grow through time. And uh, whether you're withdrawing it or saving for the future, it's really a time-tested strategy. We'll get to the two distinctions you make, building wealth and then withdrawing from wealth later in life, presumably. But you also say about uh, fixed income, you say that's the problem. It's fixed. Yeah, they were not so subtle, were they? They actually put it in the title (laughs) that it's fixed. And to the degree that people say no with the bond ladder, It doesn't have to fix because you have just new maturities and new investments always coming about. Well, the fact of the matter is for 30 plus years, all of that is done is lower the income. It's either fixed or worse, not fixed or better because we've been in a secularly declining period of rates. And, And I think that you lose the underlying growth of the asset. And that's the whole issue I want people to understand about dividend growth investing. I make the mechanical argument for reinvestment compounding growth. I make the mechanical argument for withdrawal, protecting your income stream in the future. But what underlies both of those things is really well-run companies. See, I'm a free enterprise guy. I think the story of free enterprise is not best embedded in speculation and day trading. It's best embedded in operating enterprises that have competitive advantages, that they can generate free cash flows, that they grow year over year. And, and you get to witness that kind of miracle of markets in the, the story of dividend growth. That, to me, is the real advantage. You have better companies when they're dividend growers. Well, one of the points you make in the book is that today's high flyers, if they're truly good companies, eventually become tomorrow's great dividend payers. Yeah, that's been fun to watch because you go back to the late 90s, and I was beginning my career as an investor and as an investment advisor, and I loved all the tech stuff in the late 90s, and you would wake up one day and make more money than you might have made the year prior. It was amazing. But the fact of the matter is Cisco, Intel, Qualcomm, Microsoft, these companies couldn't even consider paying a dividend back then. It was so out of style. They were growing so much. People would have laughed it off. Oh, they're going to pay me 3 or 4% in a year? I'm trying to make 3 or 4% in an hour. That was the mentality, the culture. All of these companies now are some of the great dividend payers we've ever seen. You like Cisco. 
is a dividend payer. Yeah. Who would have thunk it? Yeah, not just a dividend payer, but one of the best dividend payers here of the last decade with significant path to growing that dividend into the future. One of the statements you make that is not quite a throwaway but gets people thinking is pay less attention to the stock price and pay more attention to the growth of income, growth of the dividend. Now, you also point out since it's true that there are going to be times when dividend payers, the kind you like, are going to underperform other sectors. And you say, don't sweat it? Well, that's right. I mean, first of all, there's no point in sweating it because it's unavoidable. These are circumstances outside of one's control. And so in those years, generally when dividend growers underperform, it's because everything else is doing so much better. So it isn't like you're losing money. It's just that you're not making as much as your brother-in-law or something like that. That, to me, is a really odd investment objective. My goal in investing is to beat my brother-in-law or beat my neighbor. It doesn't help anyone achieve goals. But it's so if you want to get rich, stay away from cocktail parties. Cocktail parties are where Barbecues. liars go to tell you their <laughs> stories, and it's not unlike Vegas. It's amazing. I've never met anyone who apparently lost money at a blackjack table. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, 2013 was a great example. It was they ended up making permanent most of the Bush tax cuts. The QE3 was hot and heavy and the world didn't end when President Obama was reelected and they said, "Okay, the market's really got a big new bid." And at that point Draghi was bazooking liquidity all over Europe and you had a lot of the Fang stocks up about 30%. And so people would say, you know, we're disappointed. The dividend growers haven't done well. And I said, that's right. They're only up 16%. So this is what you have to be worried about, that you may have a year where you're only up 16%, but because something else is up more. So going back to reinvesting dividends and compounding, we mentioned 9.8%. But if you do the compounding, it's what, more like 15? That's right. That's right. So you end up, if you're compounding those returns, you have to kind of look at individual stocks. Let's do that with a McDonald's or Procter Gamble. Not going back to the 50s, 60s, or, you know, I'm just saying in the last 30 years. Right now, McDonald's dividend if you've been compounding it over the years, is higher than you paid for the share of stock 30 years ago. Same as Procter Gamble. So forget the fact that McDonald's with reinvested dividends is up 82,000% since it went public. Um, The reality is just for income, boring, unsexy income, you're right now getting over 100% cash on cash per year, not to mention that your stock is up, you know, 2,000%. And celebrate with a lot of Big Macs on A lot that. of Big Macs, and don't, don't forget their French fries. That's right. <laughs> now, your criteria with the S&P, we'll maybe chat about that in a moment. Dividends, low percent now, historically, 1.7, 2%. Your criteria is when the stocks you like to pick are has to be better than the S&P 500 average. But also, apropos of Disney, You want to see, what, 5% growth for at least five years in dividends? You want consistent dividend growth? Walk us through that. That's the ideal. And that ideal got tested out of the financial crisis because you expected that there would be companies that would have to cut the dividends. And other than Fed-mandated cutting of the dividends from some of the financial companies, 
including ones who were perfectly capable of still paying it, like a J.P. Morgan. The fact of the matter is that all these companies, Procter Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola, a lot of the energy pipeline companies, they kept paying their dividends. Their free cash flows weren't interrupted, even by that awful recession. So you want companies to have endurance. Now, there are sometimes event-driven things that can interrupt, and you have to do an analysis. But what you can't do is cut the dividend. If they just simply raise the dividend when things are good and cut it when it's bad, which is what companies do with stock buybacks, that, that doesn't work for us. We want the consistency, and that's why we have to do fundamental analysis to make those decisions. Now, just playing off of that, you point out even in bear markets, like the terrible one we had from late 2007, 2009, or the early 2000s, 50, 60, 70 percent loss of capital, yet the decline in dividends was what, at worst 3 percent? That's right. And that's taking the whole index. That's not even just isolating the dividend growers. So for the portfolio we manage, we kicked off more income in 08 than 07 and more in 09 so, than 08. So even, even though nominally you're losing, you're yeah. still getting cash. That's right. That's right. And that's what the emphasis on the strong dividend-growing companies, it's the propensity of management to maintain the dividend, the culture of the company. You know, there's certain cyclical companies that may not be able to do that. So we try to avoid some of those things. But you, even for just an S&P 500 investor, their dividend-level payment through the recession was barely affected. It also means if you have the stomach to sit through these things, that if you are reinvesting those dividends, you're getting shares at a cheaper price, what we used to call dollar cost averaging, and actually you do very well. Yeah, well, in other words, volatility can be your friend. And dividend growth is dollar cost averaging for the accumulator without having to write a check or without having to set up an ACH from your account. It's automated dollar cost averaging because those dividends are paying every quarter and automatically reinvesting into more shares. And so uh, the financial crisis was a great opportunity for people to be accumulating more shares. And to the extent that they even had new capital they could add to their portfolio, you know, a lot of these stocks had dividend yields that were above 5% because the stock prices were down so much. Now a lot of that is normalized. You also say that not all yields are equal. And you cite a company like AT&T, juicy, juicy yield, but it's got a lot of debt and the dividend isn't growing very much. Walk us through that. Yeah, AT&T is one where I really want to be wrong about. I'm not rooting for AT&T to go down. We owned it for a long time. We did sell it a year ago a little over a year ago now, replaced it with Verizon. But the reason we did it is they closed on the Time Warner deal. And whoever in the Trump administration was trying to keep that deal from happening, I think they were doing a great favor for AT&T. But it, the courts eventually let the deal go through. And so now AT&T has $250 billion of debt on their balance sheet, 175 straight debt and 75 in lease and pension obligations. It's the most of any company in history. And it's more than a lot of countries have, frankly. I just don't see how they will be able to continue paying the dividend, let alone grow the dividend, if there's any modest distress to business. So it's too so risky. So this, this, this gets to uh, your point. Don't just look at the yield. So let's go through your four basic criteria for picking these. Let's start with free cash flow. Well, that's my favorite one, and it's the one that the dot-com era helped get ignored in a lot of investment analysis. 
I always talk about the idea of just intuitively, why do you invest in a business? Well, because we want to make money. Well, what does that mean? It means that there's more cash coming in than going out. It's really very basic. And I think that the free cash flow as a metric of analyzing a company got somewhat hidden through the dot-com era. People started talking about user traffic and they started free making- Free cash it, flow means after they paid all the expenses and everything else. They, how, how much cash is still yeah. there. It's real simple, down and dirty metric. And EBITDA and gap accounting enables people to kind of sometimes create an important picture, but it's more complicated. Free cash flow is not complicated. I think that at the end of the day, companies growing their free cash flow, you have a pretty good idea of how stable that enterprise may be. And then from that growing free cash flow, their propensity to share that dividend with you as opposed to M&A junkies, companies that take their cash and are addicted to deals all the time, the vast majority of which there's been some real great deals done in corporate M&A history. But a lot of M&A deals are value destructive, and we need to avoid that stuff. Great for investment bankers, but not necessarily for shareholders. Yes. Now, another one, payout ratio. And the payout ratio can be wrong or a problem in one of two ways. It can be too low or it can be too high. If a company is already paying out 88% of their profits in dividends, they may not have a lot of room to grow the dividend. Sometimes you see companies with a dividend payout ratio over 100%. They're basically, it's like a non-sinister Ponzi finance. They're paying out more than they're earning to try to keep the shareholders in while they turn things around. A lot of companies that are really dependent on CapEx will do that. So we don't want dividend payout ratios that are too high. But then you'll see companies with a dividend payout ratio that's just far too low. And I'm Disney. sad. Disney's been one for many years, and I think Apple has been one as well. And both have really frustrated shareholders because both those companies are cash flow generating machines, but they have not been as likely to grow the dividend that they will pay to shareholders as you would think their, their financial metrics would allow. So we like to see ones between kind of 40 and 60 percent in more traditional businesses. And so even though Disney's done fantastically well in terms of price appreciation, you would still say you got to be disciplined. Yeah, I do. And also Disney's trickier for us, too, because it is highly cyclical. Their, their key theme park business is very vulnerable. I don't know what their pricing power is. You know, at this point, it's so expensive. I'm but waiting for the $1,000 day ticket. It's oh, just... it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> yes. Now, another one is balance sheet. Apropos of a payout ratio, some companies borrow money to pay dividends. Yeah, and we can't tolerate that. But the balance sheet issue is what much like you brought up with AT&T debt to assets, debt to income, enterprise value divided by earnings. We look at all these valuation metrics and just say, is there enough stability? Why was J.P. Morgan able to pay a pretty handsome dividend through all these post-crisis years? But Citigroup, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, they had almost no dividend for years. It wasn't just the regulators. J.P. Morgan had a far better balance sheet. And, and balance sheets don't matter when everything's going great. And in fact, people criticize folks for not taking more risk with their balance sheet. Balance sheets matter because we want to be defensive investors. And earnings consistency is your fourth criteria. And this sort of plays a little bit into what we're talking about with Disney. How regular is the flow of earnings for a given company? We talk about investing in things that people have to have. 
And I do believe, first of all, Wi-Fi has become a have-to-have. So even beyond telecom, but you have water and housing and, and food. We love the consumer staples group. It's amazing when you look at your charts, best performers and worst performers. Consumer staples are never there. They're never at the bottom, never at the top. They're always somewhere kind of in the middle or top half because I think there's a non-cyclicality. They're going to earn money no matter what. Even as we're sitting here talking, Procter Gamble just had its best organic revenue growth quarter in two decades. You would think at some point it's hard to keep growing with diapers and toothpaste and things like that. But guess what? Even in a recession, people are going to change their baby's diaper. You discuss in the book that it's not just dividends, but dividends can tell us something about a company's culture. Walk us through that. Yeah, and that is one of the more important parts, I think, of the book, that there is a desire in pop culture for get-rich-quick, for big headlines. A lot of the C-suites are filled with very ambitious people. And you joke about investment bankers doing well with M&A, but I think a lot of the C-suite guys do too. It's legacy, it's ego. You want a culture where they actually value dependable cash flow generation, where they value stability, where they value a growing enterprise. You look at what Intel has done over these last several decades through really challenging periods of reinvention, yet they've been just kind of a rock and and a stable grower of that cash flow. Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola are perhaps two of the best examples in the last 75 years. So that culture that is embedded in dividend growers, it's almost a statement that they're saying we're not looking to be the hottest dot. And the hot dot company from dot-com to Fang now, I can understand why a lot of people would reach for that type of thing. It takes a sort of character to say we just want to survive and thrive over time. That's what I believe the dividend growth world is all about. People worry about inflation. You say Dividend growth is the best insurance. It mathematically is indisputably so because by definition, you first of all have dividend growth that is above the rate of inflation. So just the way it affects your pocketbook, you're getting more in growing income than you're losing in purchasing power. Is this true in the 70s as well? It It was. Even at that point, dividend growth was above the rate of inflation, though the spread was not as much as it is now. But by definition, it's true because there is no inflation if cheeseburgers aren't going up in price. So by so the companies are on the battle on the front lines, able to pass on the impact of inflation to their customers. So I may not like inflation as a producer, and I certainly wouldn't like it as a consumer. But as an investor, I'm actually able to, at worst case, keep up with it, and in best case, supersede it because they're passing on the impact of inflation to their customers. Now, people who are retiring or making a change in life, you say in terms of withdrawals, you're going to start to take out what you've accumulated. You say there's a right way and the wrong way. Tell us what the right way is, or the wrong way. Let's begin, like a percentage of the portfolio or a fixed amount. Walk us through the mistakes and then get to the right way. I think a a real common thing to do is take a calculator and say, okay, I have X number of dollars and I need a certain amount. And if I just withdraw 4% from the amount of money I have or whatever the number someone comes up with is. But what they forget is if you have a prolonged bad period in markets, you're withdrawing from that portfolio. The value is going lower. So your, your percentage is dropping as well. But even apart from that, when the markets recover, they're recovering with less money in it. 
It's called negative compounding. So a sustained withdrawal from a declining portfolio, which is what most people are set up to do, particularly out of mutual funds and ETFs, they're eroding their principal over time. Now, we've had a couple of shocks in the market since the financial crisis. They didn't last very long. So people haven't really felt it. They said, okay, we had a bad month back in December. We had a bad month back in 2016. But from 2000 to 2002, it was three years long. From late 07 to the spring of 09, that was a year and a half. If someone retired, put a million bucks in the S&P 500 in March of 2000 and started withdrawing, their money went down over 50% and their income went to barely anything where if they were only taking from the dividends the portfolio was creating, they were able to, even though their value would have been subject to some volatility, less than the market, but still some, but their income would have continually grown through that time period. So you mentioned uh, two things in the book. You should have a cash reserve. You just don't know what's going to happen. And number two, only make the withdrawals from your dividend account. That as much as is possible. Now, of course, there's some people that their denominator of assets they accumulate, they, they may need to withdraw from principal to, to maintain lifestyle and retirement. So they have to work with their financial planner to figure out those exact numbers and so forth. But certainly anyone who has the capacity to withdraw from income instead of selling shares, the assumption that their total return will do the work for them is a very dangerous assumption. I make the point in the book, there are plenty of people that earn 8% and lose money quicker than someone who earns 7%. So how's that possible? It's the mechanics of withdrawal. Because if you're relying on that 8% in bad periods and withdrawing from it, and it's recovering, but there's already less money in the portfolio, you don't give yourself that breathing room. So a cash cushion and then having the dividends feed, we kind of use a structure at my company where I just tell people, don't even worry about the value of the portfolio. The cash is going into this cash account. There's a little reserve there uh, for excess. And then, yeah, you're going to get stock appreciation. You can pay yourself bonuses and things like that. It's a riskier proposition. Emerging markets, a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of risk. There is. The, there's the geopolitical risk and there is the currency risk that I think defines It's really what's held emerging markets back the last 10 years from 2000 to 2008, let's say, the dollar was weakening under President Bush. I wasn't happy about it, but as an emerging markets investor, you were getting a lot of juice in your investing because of the currency factor. That has sort of gone the other way these last 10 years, but frankly, the earnings in a lot of emerging markets, and I don't mean companies exporting oil or exporting commodities. I mean local, homegrown, domestic earnings growth has been fantastic. And they don't have a mature dividend growth orientation yet. A lot of them are still pegging their dividend payouts to the profits, so the dividends go up and down with companies. Once they sort of join the 21st century of dividend growth, I think you're going to have some tremendous income opportunity. And we actually believe Japan is a developed market that the same is true for. They only have a 28% dividend payout ratio in Japan. And they have 5 trillion yen on balance sheets of their companies. So they shouldn't theoretically need to pay for any capex for years. And their uh, income-starved society, I think you're going to get some dividend growth in Japan too. 
But emerging markets and even a developed market like Japan, you would say that's separate. Don't mix the two. Yeah, we have a little bit of exposure, emerging markets, dividend growth, a little bit in Japan. But our bread and butter, of course, is still in U.S. equity, not only because we're dollar-denominated investors, but you you just only want a little bit of that geopolitical risk that emerging markets present. So what are some of the stocks you do like? You mentioned well, McDonald's. You still like McDonald's? Still, still like McDonald's. It's certainly pricier than it was when we first bought it. But in 2008, it was at $50 a share, and it was paying 3.5% dividend. And 10 years later, it was at 150 and paying a 3.5% dividend. The stock had tripled, but they had grown their dividend 14 times. Now the stock's way up to 220, so the yield's come a little lower. The CEO has done something just miraculous at that company. But our number one biggest holding has been this company called Blackstone. And now it's up about 60% this year because they finally converted from being a publicly traded partnership to a corporation. So it's invited a whole lot of new investors into the party. But they have given out 800% over the years in cash flow since they went public. The dividend has been somewhere between 6 and 8% for years now, all of a sudden, the stock price has really moved higher as well. And they have very, very, very little on their balance sheet. It's basically just a fee-based asset manager, one of the best in the world. They've grown their fee-based assets like crazy. And so it's a really stable, dependable company, great management, great talent that we think will continue to grow that dividend over time. That's the key, growing the dividend. Yes, indeed. So to sum up, I was going to say recap, but uh, that would be a pump bad pun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but to sum up, unsexy dividends give the sexiest returns. That's a very fair way to put it, and I think that they also make for a much less headache-filled you know, filled environment for an investor. So when you go to a cocktail party, just stick to sports. That's right. Sports or politics, I guess. That'll be more fun to talk about. If you want to get out alive. Yeah. <laughs> David, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. And now, here are my reads of the week. First one, top secret teens, high schoolers are being recruited by the National Security Agency. You'll want to read this story on CNN.com, written by a fellow named Alex Marquardt on CNN.com. The next read, you're poised to put warning labels on Jewish-made products made in Israel on the West Bank. Boy, that is reminiscent of some very ugly stuff from the 1930s. It's written by Adam Credo, K-R-E-D-O, on freebeacon.com. Europe is really doing bad things on this front, and you've got to read this story. It is an ominous portent of what could come if we don't put it down now. And my final read of the week is... Nucor's founder, Nucor is a major steel company. They used to call them mini mills because they made steel in a different way from the traditional steel companies, but it's a huge steel company. The title of the story is Nucor's founder predicted long ago that tariffs would kill the steel industry. It's written by a man named Alan Gollenbach at realclearmarkets.com. The founder warned that tariffs which are designed to help the industry would end up crippling it by making it inefficient and not pushing it to modernize production processes. And we're starting to see that play again as U.S. Steel is not doing nearly as well as it did a year ago.
Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 